you bright and early. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. And this morning, I would like us to simply focus and see Christ, focus on Christ and to see Christ. Please follow along and please stand with me as I read from the Word of God, John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. The Word of God says this, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, Chick-fil-A opened its first restaurant in Toronto in 2019. It was an exciting time. It was a, it was a big deal for Toronto. It, it was the first one in Canada. Canadians no longer had to drive across the border to get their beloved chicken. On the other hand, when Chick-fil-A opened, it also made headlines. News outlets said protesters crashed grand opening at Toronto's first Chick-fil-A. If you dared to line up for Chick-fil-A, you could be greeted by a mob of angry protesters who were against the company's Christian values. These protesters would perhaps yell at you, call you names, and maybe even make it difficult for you to line up. In other words, you'd be shamed for buying chicken from Chick-fil-A. However, these protests, this discomfort, this anger, it didn't stop those who were truly loyal and true to Chick-fil-A. Many were willing to absorb the anger, the hate, the yelling, the protests to have their beloved chicken. Why? Because Chick-fil-A was worth it. Chick-fil-A just tastes too good. Many people gladly endured this persecution, quote-unquote persecution, because of the reward of a warm, crispy sandwich in their belly. Well, Chick-fil-A is pretty good, but of course, infinitely more glorious, more satisfying and worthwhile is the person of Jesus Christ. You see, some of us might be willing to endure some difficulty for the things of this world, but when it comes to Christ, who is, of course, infinitely more glorious and valuable, are we willing to sacrifice to be loyal, to endure significant hardship? Are we devoted to the Lord in every season of life? We do it for the things of this world. Will we do it for Christ? Well, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, then he is worthy of your all. He is worthy of your time. He's worthy of your attention. He is worthy of your best, not just of your scraps or when you have time. He's worthy of your all. So before we go into this passage, let's consider some of the context leading up to chapter 12. 
The Gospel of John was written, as you may know, that we might believe in the name of Jesus Christ and the Son of God. And, and by believing in him, we may have eternal life. Up to this point in chapter 12, Jesus has already done some amazing things to verify his authority and character. For example, Jesus up to this point, has already performed miraculous signs such as turning water to wine, feeding 5,000, restoring the sight of the blind, walking on water. He claimed to be the bread of life, the light of the world. He claimed to be the one, claimed to be one with God the Father. And later on in chapter 14, Jesus claims to be the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to God the Father. And indeed, he is God in the flesh. Also, in chapter 11, just before our passage today, there was this final sign from Christ in the Gospel of John before beginning his private ministry with his disciples. Chapter 11 is amazing in that we see the power of Christ bringing Lazarus, Mary's brother, back to life. Lazarus at that point was already dead for four days with no hope of uh, resuscitation in the eyes of the Jews. He was dead and he would stay dead but by the word of Christ, he rose again. He came back to life. That was amazing. However, Christ indeed is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord of all. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. And all who believe in him would have eternal life, though he die, though they die. The claims that Jesus makes about himself, about the eternal life in him, are all radical claims, weren't they? Yet the first half of the book of John shows these miraculous signs that verify his radical claims. He could make these claims because he backed it up. He backed up what he said. The final sign of bringing Lazarus back to life not only shows the power and deity of Christ, but it shows that he is the resurrection and the life. And we know, nevertheless, that as the end of chapter 11 shows, he would ultimately have to die before he brought this life to his people. For example, in chapter 11, verses 50, in verse 51, Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for the nations and for all those scattered abroad. Even if Caiaphas was not a believer, God used him to prophesy about Christ, showing that Jesus' death was imminent. It was coming. It was soon. So in a sense, this last sign that is raising Lazarus back to life in chapter 11, it sets the tone for the second half of the book of the Gospel of John. It sets in motion the path to Christ's death as leaders now plan to have him killed. Yes, Jesus has done a great miracle in bringing someone back to life, displaying his power and affirming his words. Yet this last great miracle in John is used by God to set in motion the human decree to kill Christ. And as we think even back to chapter 11 and to the beginning of the Gospel of John, Christ is amazing. He's marvelous, and he shows his power over life. Yet we must keep in mind that the death of Christ was now drawing near. So this is the backdrop of chapter 12. And in our context, we find that chapter 12 is the last chapter before this third section of the book, which highlights the farewell discourse and passion account. We're leading up to the passion account of Christ. So I want us first to feel the gravity of the events happening here in chapter 12. Before chapter 12, the gospel already highlighted, like I said, many great miracles of Christ, many great teachings of Christ. Chapter 11 displayed the, the final miracle of Christ in raising Lazarus back from the dead. Yet in chapters 13 to 20, the book now covers his path to his death. 
The king of glory has humbled himself and is on his way to die to bring us back, to bring us life. And we see now that there's this great feast, this great dinner that Jesus is having with Lazarus, with Mary, with Martha, with his disciples. And we see a couple of unique responses to all that is happening. First, we see a response of devotion. Then we see a response of foolishness. And lastly, we see a response from Christ. Well, first, in verses 1 to 3, we see a response of devotion. In these verses, we are brought to the person of Mary, aren't we? And just a chapter earlier, Mary was at Jesus' feet weeping, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Perhaps at that point in chapter 11, Mary did not yet understand that Jesus was about to do something amazing. Even though it was acknowledged that he, yes, was the resurrection and life, she didn't know she was, that he was going to raise her brother back from the dead. There should be no mistake. Mary, a little while ago, was weeping over her dead brother Lazarus, but witnessed the amazing miracle of Jesus raising her brother back from the dead, verifying everything Jesus said to her about being the resurrection and life to be true, verifying his power and might over life. Brothers and sisters, Lazarus, who was once dead, was now literally sitting at the table with all of them, living, eating, talking, talking. Imagine the joy and amazement in Mary's heart at this very moment. Imagine the joy and wonder of all the people at this dinner. Mary's brother, Lazarus, was previously dead for four days, long enough for his body to decompose and to smell, have an odor. But the miraculous thing was that Jesus raised this dead man back to life, to the land of the living. And on top of that, it was six days before the Passover, as it says. It was a significant, significant time for the Jews. During the Passover, the Jews remembered the power and protection of God many years ago. Through the sacrifice and blood of a lamb, the wrath of God would pass over all who were covered by the blood on the doorpost. All who did not have the blood of the lamb would face judgment and death of their firstborn son. The power of Christ displayed and the celebration of the Passover were all therefore fresh in the minds of those at this dinner in verse 2. The amazing power and person of Christ should also be on our minds as well. Perhaps Mary did not fully understand this yet, but Christ himself, the Messiah, the Son of God, the true Passover lamb, who would die and divert the wrath of God onto himself, was sitting in front of her. Brothers and sisters, again, feel the wonder and greatness of this scene, especially as you have a fuller picture of Christ this morning, a picture and understanding that Mary did not yet fully have. Yet we definitely do see that Mary had enough understanding to know that Christ was significant. No mere man brings someone back to life. No mere man turns water to wine, heals the sick, feeds 5,000, walks on water, or restores the sight of the, of the blind. But Christ did. And Christ was the resurrection and the life. I mean, for sure, sitting at the table with Lazarus, who was dead not long ago, was amazing. But no words could describe the man who raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus was something else wasn't he? Good news has come, and Mary must have seen at least some of this because of what she goes on to do next. Mary, after perhaps being so amazed and so humbled by the work of Christ, displays her devotion and humility towards Christ in our passage. 
Look at verse 3. She takes a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anoints Jesus' feet. As others know, nard is oil taken from the root and spike of a nard plant, which is grown in India. It had to be imported. And here, John highlights its purity. The word for pure here points to being genuine or faithful. It wasn't fake. John also highlights that Mary used a pound of it. In other words, we should understand that this was no cheap axe body spray. It was no cheap old spice. It was expensive, pure, and significant in the amount that she gave to Jesus. The ointment, according to Judas himself later on in verse 5, was worth at least a year's wages, if not more, a year's wages. One denarii in those days, it was equivalent to one day's wage. Therefore, a year of salary was likely all being used up at once on Jesus. Definitely, this was, again, no cheap perfume or ointment. And we also see in verse 3 that the whole house is filled with the fragrance of perfume. Authors give various interpretations of the significance of the sentence. It could point to the quality of this perfume since the fragrance of it filled the house to show its goodness. It wasn't cheap perfume. It, it could also point to Mary's extravagant love. No doubt the whole house was aware of what was going on since the perfume was so strong. They could see what she's, she was doing or they could at least sense her act of service and humility as they smelled this ointment. Everyone could smell the ointment and the result of her act towards Christ. So the filling, this fragrance that was filling the room was a a testament or a a symbolic representation of Mary's great love or her extravagant love towards Christ. And furthermore, this statement on the, the fragrance filling the house was a way for the author to explain that this event would extend beyond for others to remember. The fragrance of this act That is, what Mary was doing, it was significant. She's an example even today to all believers. So she was doing a great thing, wasn't she? Mary was displaying a posture of heart that was pleasing towards Christ. A a genuine posture of heart, of loyalty, humility, of love towards Christ. But don't you see, brothers and sisters, even greater than Mary here is Christ. Christ is worthy of our all. This is what this passage can point us to, the worth of Christ. Christ is worthy of Mary's ointment. He is more valuable and more precious than anything money could ever buy. Mary, yes, no doubt understands how much money she might be losing here, but she seems to understand how much she is gaining in choosing to be devoted to Christ. In verse 3, we not only see Mary use something costly and valuable on Christ, but we see then that she proceeds to wipe the feet of Christ with her hair. She doesn't just stop with the ointment. This was, again, an act of clear love and devotion to Christ. Indeed, the work of cleaning feet or stooping to the level of Mary at that moment was was the work of a servant. That's what servants did. It's not every day that you see someone of some repute kneeling before someone's feet and wiping it, wiping it with their hair. Mary saw Christ's miraculous work. She heard his word. He is the resurrection and the life. Christ is worthy of all her love, all her devotion, all of her service. There's no problem for her to do this. No doubt the heart of Mary has been melted by the great work and words of Christ himself. 
Of course, again, Mary's act of devotion and service is great. And yes, we can learn from her. We should learn from her. But the main character here is Jesus himself. Christ is the one who is worthy of all of Mary's service and devotion. Christ is the ultimate Passover lamb. Christ is the Messiah, God's anointed one. God is not necessarily impressed by all the gifts and acts of service that we do for him. Rather, he's looking at the heart. He's looking at the heart. So I ask you all, brothers and sisters, where is your posture of heart before God this morning? You have a much fuller picture of Christ than Mary did 2,000 years ago. And in your heart, do you see Christ as beautiful? Do you see him as worthy of all your devotion and service? Is he the Lord and Savior of your lives? There is no one else in all the universe more worthy of your hearts today, especially on this side of the cross. Christ must be our number one priority in life. We are to be loyal to him first, not to our jobs, not to our money, not even to our family, to our spouse and to our parents. Christ comes first. So do you take time to fellowship with Christ? Do you marvel at who he is? Do you consider his power, his perfection, his kindness, his grace in your life? Well, perhaps for some of you this morning, you've been swimming in a sea of apathy. Your heart is cold to Christ. You woke up this morning with no thought of Christ. You're complacent, comfortable, self-sufficient. Well, if that's you, you need to come before Christ once again. Fix your eyes on him until your heart melts with affection and love and devotion once again. For others of you, you love the Lord, yes, but you also love your life. You love your possessions. You love your comfort. But Mary here responded to Christ by giving her best to him. She sacrificed something of great value because Christ was more valuable to her. Christ was worth it. And for some of you, you're unwilling to sacrifice to the Lord. Maybe you've heard the call to missions recently, but you don't like going to foreign countries and being in strange places where you're unwilling to be uncomfortable for Christ. Maybe the Lord has been calling you to live more simply and to give more of your paycheck to help the poor and helpless, to to invest in the kingdom, but you rather hold on to it just in case, to spend it on yourself. Maybe for some of you, you're selfish with your time, unwilling to invest in community in the church unwilling to spend time witnessing to your co-workers and to strangers. But brothers and sisters, as I've been saying, Christ is worthy of your all. He's worthy of your sacrifice, worthy of your devotion and your loyalty. He does not deserve the little scraps that we can offer him when we have some time. He is worthy of our whole lives, whatever that may look like. As one pastor often says, do you have a blank check before the Lord? Are you devoted to the Lord, willing to do whatever he calls you to do? Does the Lord dictate your life or are you simply devoted to yourself this morning? Is Christ worth your allegiance in a hostile work environment? Yes. Is Christ worth your love over and above family and friends? Yes. Is Christ worth your time and labor for the kingdom and for the lost? Yes. Is coming here every Sunday to worship him worth it? It is. 
I bring this up because time and time again, Christians can live lives that seem like Christ is not worth it. Students put Christ off all the time until they get into a good college or until they have a good job, perhaps. Those in the workforce put Christ off all the time because work is demanding and busy. Many of us may give little to no thought of Christ during our weeks. We put Christ off all the time by refusing to share the gospel to to those who, who need it because we're scared. Christ is worthy of your time. He's worthy of your mind, of your service, of your loyalty and your love. He's worthy of everything. For the unbeliever this morning, trusting in in Christ can come with a lot of earthly trials, can it? It can come with difficulty. We don't hide that here. Family may reject you and look down on you. Our world and culture may see you as bigoted and naive and foolish. Friends may no longer consider consider you a friend. After all, Christians should expect to be hated for the devotion to Christ. Friends, again, Christ is worth it. As we will see later on, he went to the cross for you to die for your sin, to redeem you, to forgive you, and to raise you up. He alone offers you everlasting life and forgiveness of sin. Christ is worth more than a lifestyle lived with all sorts of licentiousness. Christ is more than a million-dollar paycheck. He is the Lord of the universe, and you need to trust in him before it's too late. It will be worth your while. As we move on in our narrative, we now come to verses 4 to 6. First, we saw the heart of Mary towards Christ, a response of devotion. But now we see a response of foolishness, a response of foolishness from Judas. Here, he rejects and rebukes Mary's act of devotion, and ultimately, he does not see the worthiness of Christ. No doubt that Judas was aware, if not usually a usually present for all the teachings and miracles of Christ. Judas was, again, one of Jesus' disciples, wasn't he? And as mentioned already, Christ literally just raised someone back from the dead, from the dead. Yet we see a picture here in Judas, a picture of a heart that was cold towards Christ, a heart that rejects Christ. Brothers and sisters, it's not impossible to witness the greatness of Christ, to see his miracles and the mighty work of Christ, yet to reject him, to completely misunderstand him. The things of this world are deceiving and the treasures of this world can be dangerous. It is more than possible to see the treasures of this world and to love it more than the greatest treasure of Christ. Judas as Jesus' disciple in verse 5 questions Mary and her act of devotion. He asks why she didn't sell this ointment and give it to the poor. Why did she do this? Wouldn't that have been a better act of service? Wouldn't that be a better use of money and resource if you sold it and gave it to the poor? But of course, as we see, Judas misses the point. Mary has done a beautiful thing to Christ, yet all he can think about here is money. Ultimately, as verse 6 says, Judas didn't even care about the poor. Instead, he was a thief. He would have stolen the money anyway that was supposed to go to the poor. In light of this, one commentator explains how even social activism that may meet real needs can hide a spirit that knows nothing of worship and adoration. Isn't that Judas here? Sure, Judas here was suggesting something that could have helped the poor in a tangible way, yes. A year's worth of salary could indeed help someone greatly, but Judas, in his self-righteousness, was ironically missing the ability to worship and adore Christ with Mary. 
He didn't really care about the poor, even if that's what he was trying to show with his words. But worse than this, he was missing Christ. Unable to worship, unable to fall at Christ's feet with Mary. So beware, brothers and sisters. Beware of being hypocrites before Christ. Beware of trying to present yourself to Christ one way while internally hiding away all sorts of covetousness and impure motive. Judas, in light of all Christ did, in light of the beautiful act and service that Mary just performed, responds with rejection and with a hardened heart. Didn't Judas see that the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings was in his presence? Didn't he see that the long foretold Son of Man, worthy of all power and dominion, was literally right in front of him? God in the flesh. The word of God made known, the presence of God no longer in human tents. Jesus Christ was in front of him. Fulfillment in Christ has literally been happening in front of Judas' eyes all this time. And all he can think about is money, money, money. All he sees from the act of Mary is lost money. He could have profited from Mary's ointment instead. Brothers and sisters, don't miss the big picture in John's gospel. Don't miss Christ. Not too long ago, I was in Arizona with a few other people. And as many of you know, Arizona is home to one of the most beautiful natural wonders of the world, the Grand Canyon. One day, my group and I, we decided to go to the Grand Canyon to see this amazing wonder of the world. When you get there, the canyon is larger than life. It's amazing. It's, it's beautiful. You have to take different buses to see different parts of the canyon. So much to see, so much to do and hike and to take in. Yet, while being at the beautiful Grand Canyon, all some people could think about was going back to the really nice resort that we were staying at. The tennis courts, the pool, the amazing facilities, they were all there, and it was even more amazing, it seemed. I mean, yes, the Grand Canyon was cool, but we want to go and relax at the hotel. Instead of focusing on the Grand Canyon, some of us were simply content to think about the hotel we were staying, staying at rather than taking in something we may never see again. We were in Arizona. Arizona is so much more than a hotel, but some of us missed that big picture. Well, again, in a far greater way, in our passage, Jesus Christ, the creator of the Grand Canyon and of the whole world, is before Judas. Eternal life himself is present. Christ is physically there with this, the disciples, and he won't always be physically around. Yet again, all Judas could think of was the money lost from Mary's act of devotion. All he could think about was the temporary joy that could be found with something as temporary as money. Judas missed the big picture of Christ. He was missing the wonder and glory right in front of him. He was before the almighty Lord Jesus Christ, but he was blind, wasn't he? Well, when we think about our own lives now, are we missing the big picture of Christ? On this side of the cross, we have no excuse, brothers and sisters. Christ has already died and resurrected. He is the Lord of life. Yet when you consider him and his words, do you misunderstand? Do you reject him? Do you think and devote yourself to things that are infinitely less glorious? Is the mission of Christ, his death and resurrection, lost on your mind and hearts? 
Brothers and sisters, it's very possible and easy to love and to be devoted to other things in this world more than Jesus Christ. We've seen that in, in Judas himself, even though Christ was right in front of him. A seminary professor shared a story once, and it went along these lines. There was a student who spent four years in seminary, and finally, it was time for him to graduate. A joyful occasion after reading lots of books and studying for many, many hours. Graduation was here. However, when the day came, this student was unable to find his wife at the ceremony. So he goes back home and searches for his wife uh, with no luck. And finally, he gets to the bedroom and he sees something odd. He sees all his seminary books on his bed, on their bed. And there he also finds a note from his wife saying, Congratulations, here are all the books you got in bed with. His wife was gone. The student, this husband, tragically neglected his wife for, the studies, for his studies while in seminary. He treasured his books over and above his, his wife. And while this story highlights a man's sinful neglect of his wife, can this not also apply to our relationship to Christ as well? We can be devoted to so many good things in this world, yet tragically, while we do that, we can miss the greatest thing, the greatest person, Christ himself, the one our eyes should have never left in the first place. This happens all the time, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? Students can go to seminary, fall in love with academia, and out of love for Christ. Christians can go on mission, mission trips and fall in love with the world and forget Christ. Workers in Silicon Valley can thank God for their new job, but several months later, they can devote themselves to their job over and above Christ. Social workers and social justice warriors can seek to serve the poor and less fortunate, but not in the name of Christ, nor with a goal to make him known. All this to say we can miss the big picture of Christ in a sense, and in a sense, reject him because our eyes and our hearts are devoted to other things. Consider your ways, brothers and sisters. Consider where your devotion lies. Is it on Christ this morning? Furthermore, while money in this passage is not the main point, it is worth highlighting just for a minute. Does not Judas here illustrate the truth of how we cannot serve both God and money? Matthew 6, 24 famously says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will, de- he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Judas wasn't devoted to Christ. He was devoted to silver and gold, even though Judas walked with Christ and witnessed the glory of Christ. We see this even later in the Gospels as Judas then betrays, he goes and betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, doesn't he? Money and riches were more glorious and more beautiful than Jesus himself. He served money and he ultimately despised Christ. Oh, beloved, may that not be you. Money is important, yes, but it's never to be your God. Our jobs, our investments, even our worldly relationships, they're important, yes. Money and all of these things are worth something, but it's not worth your soul. Christ alone is worthy of your life and your soul. Christ alone is worthy of your undivided devotion. Money, riches, possessions will all pass away, but Christ stands forever. Money, possessions, family, friends will fail you, but Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. He gives us rest. He restores our souls. So be devoted to him. Serve him as the Lord of your life above all. 
Where does your devotion lie this morning? And this brings us to our third point, which highlights a response from Christ, a response from Christ in verses 7 to 8. In Christ's response, we see that, sorry, in his response, we see that Jesus stands up for Mary. Christ stands up for Mary despite Judas's words. And he also sets the tone for the rest of his time on earth. The focus is no longer on Jesus' signs and miracles, like I said, but the scenes and the moods, they're shifting and they're turning to Christ and his road to the cross. It's clear when Jesus tells Judas, leave her alone, that Judas was in the wrong. Judas was in the wrong. Mary has just performed a beautiful act of devotion, displaying humility and love towards Christ. Though Mary's act of anointing Jesus' feet is not a prescriptive act, it is nevertheless still a, it displays a heart that is pleasing towards Christ, something we can learn from. And Mary was able to focus on Christ and respond correctly towards Christ, whereas Judas was not. And in verse 7, we also see the purpose for which Judas was to leave Mary alone. Whether Mary knew it or not, her actions were highly significant because of what it pointed to what it pointed forward to. Indeed, the act of anointing Christ is directly linked to, and it also foreshadowed the coming burial and death of Christ. As one author notes, Mary kept this perfume for this special act, which in turn prepares Christ for his burial. This perfume, this anointing, signifies something that was to come. Jesus was getting ready, and I believe getting us ready for his imminent death. Therefore, Judas is told to leave Mary alone because this anointing of Jesus is serving a purpose. This perfume, again, was meant and it was saved for Christ. It was never meant to be sold in the first place for money. And again, as one notes, it is likely that Mary and the others didn't understand this talk of Christ's burial. They didn't explicitly know that the cross was coming. And nevertheless, Mary was keeping this anointment, and it was meant for Christ and his burial, even though it was being put on him while he was alive. Mary was showing devotion, but her action of keeping this ointment signaled more than she understood, in a sense. So here, the burial, the coming death of Christ is clearly on display for us as readers to take in and remember. This is what John is highlighting for us. Jesus' burial, his, his coming death. Jesus, again, he is the resurrection and the life. He is the Messiah. He is the worthy one. And this scene shows us that Christ, as the anointed one, would have to die. And we know he would have to die to bring us life. Then our passage ends in verse 8 with Christ saying, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Christ here is not denying our obligation to those in our community and to the poor. Rather, he concedes this truth, yes, about the poor always having, being present in this world, yet he pushes forward the more pressing truth at the moment of how you will not always have me. In other words, for the characters in this chapter, there will be time to attend to the poor, but there won't always be time to be with Christ in the flesh. At that moment, it was time to focus on Christ In fact, this point of not always having Christ is the reason for why Judas is to leave her alone. Christ is on his way to die. Then he will eventually ascend back to heaven. These are some of the last moments that they will all have with Christ. Therefore, leave Mary alone. 
Therefore, let her pour out this perfume on Christ. This anointing is for Christ. Christ is with you now. There is definitely much more to do once Christ leaves. Yes, there's a great mission at hand, but Christ is still here. As others pointed out to me this week, the time to prioritize Christ is now, not later. There will always be other distractions and other things to, to attend to work, you know, uh, finances, cars, everything, our houses. But Christ deserves your attention now. He deserves your allegiance, your loyalty now, today, not tomorrow, for tomorrow may be too late. So again, I believe the main point here is on Christ. This is what John is highlighting, Christ, on his presence, his mission, on his worthiness. We do well to remember that the book of John was written so that we may believe in Christ alone and have eternal life. And as we read this passage, don't miss the importance of what Christ is talking about. The beauty of Christ is, is on display for us. And we also see the beauty of Christ in his response and in his commitment to die for us. And as he shows his great length, the great lengths he would go to ultimately redeem us. Christ is worthy of all our devotion. So brothers and sisters, allow me to just challenge you one more time. Do you see the goodness of Christ here? Jesus himself is the sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful Lord and God. Christ is the bread of life. He's the resurrection and life. He is the great shepherd. In Christ, we can find rest for our souls in a restless world. In Christ, we can find freedom from shame and guilt. We can find forgiveness because of his shed blood for us. In Christ, we no longer need to walk in darkness as he is the light of the world. In Christ, we can find hope for eternity. Christ was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Christ is worthy of your whole life, brothers and sisters. Give him your best work in the church. Give him your best mind and attention as you read his word. Give him your deepest devotion over and above your own family. May the world know your great love for him because of the great love which he loved you. Though in our passage there is still time before his actual death and resurrection, he has already set it in his heart that he would go and die and be buried. In John chapter 19, you can read on your own time, you can see that his burial was a sure deal. Surely then, the gospel, Christ and him going to the gospel, uh, going to the cross, rather, is the greatest reason for why he is worthy of your life. Because he died for you. Because he was buried for you. Because he gave up his life for you. That's why he's worthy of your life. That's why you need to respond to him today, because he died for you. We are, the, we are creatures created by God. We were created for fellowship with him, and yet we all sinned and rebelled against this God. We are evil people who hated God. We deserve death and hell forever. However, here in our passage, we see the gospel in motion, don't we? Jesus Christ was sent to, to earth to die. He was buried, and he lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death on the cross that we should have died. He took the wrath of God that we should have taken. Yet three days later, he rose again, never to die again. He defeated sin. He defeated death so that whoever trusts in him can be forgiven, can have everlasting life. Do you see the greatness of Christ? Believe in him, trust in him, and you can be forgiven and have a right relationship with God full of joy. Christ was no coward. He was no liar. He came to achieve his goal. 
And so, brothers and sisters, consider these truths of his death and his burial, of his commitment to redeem all who would trust in him by dying and resurrecting. Consider how, the, how Christ's work on the cross makes him worthy of your all. Is Christ worthy of your all this morning, brothers and sisters? If Christ is worthy of your all, why do some of you only come to church when it's convenient or serve when you have time? If Christ is worthy of your all, why do some of you come to church half asleep? If Christ is worthy of your all, why don't you share him with others? Why are you ashamed, ashamed of him at work and in the public eye? If Christ is worthy of your all, why are some of you still not baptized as professing believers? Or why do you put off baptism due to busyness? If Christ is worthy of your all, why have you, some of you forgotten to read your Bibles this week? Hope is not lost. You can change. You can repent. You can turn to him today. He will embrace and forgive you. And lastly, be reminded that many may want Christ as their Savior, but not as their Lord. Is that you this morning? Many may want a free ticket out of hell, but here we see that devotion, loyalty, and affection to the Lord is important. It honors the Lord. Even those currently in hell may want Jesus as a free ticket out of hell, but they don't want Jesus himself. They don't love him. They aren't devoted to him. True disciples of Christ desire Christ. Their, their lives belong to him. He is not just a magical genie or insurance policy for you. If you are in Christ, live your life for him as your Lord. Revere him, honor him, follow him, love him, serve him with your very best. May you see Christ this morning and every day of your life, especially in light of his death and resurrection, as worthy of all your love, devotion, and service. He is worthy of your best efforts and service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Mary and even of Judas in our passage. That as believers, you call us to have hearts that are devoted to you, that are loyal to you. You, you do not desire half-heartedness. You do not desire us to be hypocrites, to say we honor you on Sundays, yet for the rest of the week have no thought of you, Lord. Forgive us for the ways that we have neglected you this past week. Forgive us for the ways that we have loved our jobs, our, our money, our spouse, our, our families more than you this week. Forgive us, God, and turn us again. Cause us to go in the right direction. Help us to see the greatness of Christ this morning and to respond with our whole lives. We need your help and we need your spirit to work in our lives. And we are sorry for the way that we have neglected you. May your words be life to our souls. And may we love you with, with our everything this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.